on, you can rely on Todd. Don't take that seriously. He didn't say that. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm excited about this sermon. I really am. This, this series that we start today is sort of, uh, uh, fo- it focuses on the heart of worship, right? It, 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 it addresses the need to love God and love others like we just heard from them uh, reading that one verse while living worshipfully ourselves throughout life, in everyday life, right? And the way that we live reveals what we value most, doesn't it? I mean, that's just the obvious truth. God calls us as his people, um, for, he calls us to worship of our entire being, of all that we are. And what we do in life reflects our worship of Christ or otherwise. And so my hope today this is my hope, is that I give you something to be grateful for. That I give you something to be grateful for and that that would spark a sort of a heart of worship in you and in myself as well. Uh, I've started a new practice every night. I, not every night, but I've tried to do it every night. Walking around Haverford College late at night when nobody's on the trail and I just sit and I just thank God for every little detail of my life, everything that's going on. And it's made a big difference to me. Um, so let's, th- let's begin today with, the, today with our text, Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 28 through 34, and that is found on page 692 of your pew Bibles. It should be up there on the screen. And it says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. And this is the Shema of Israel found in Deuteronomy 6, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher. Don't you love that? And like God's standing before him. He's like, good job, God. On, on your own word, good job. Mm. <laughs> well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other, no other but him. To, li- to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely... He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That would be nice for Jesus to say that to me. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions because they, they were all asking him a bunch of questions trying to trap him. And he was, you know, he was like doing the dance and getting, getting away with it all. But anyway, but the thing that I want you to take away from today, my proposition to you today, is that worship is all-encompassing gratitude. Worship is all-encompassing gratitude, gratitude of what's been done for us and in us in Christ, right? So worship is all-encompassing gratitude overflowing to others, right? Overflowing to others. So does my worship of God encompass all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength, all of my mind, all that, and then does that overflow to others? You know, Think about those things. The heart is the seat of affection, what my heart is drawn to, what I'm in, you know, what I'm in love with, what I, what I find attractive to, you know, uh, in my life, and, you know, that kind of thing. The soul, that sort of immor- immortal part of us that we, we gives us our identity, um, my mind, my intellect, my thought life, what goes through my, my brain, um, my strength, 
both internal strength, physical strength as well. I think it means here that that to which we give our bodies, what we put our lives to, you know, our actions and stuff like that. And if we are to worship God, we must endeavor to know and honor God in every way that he offers, which requires intentionality and commitment and devotion in our lives. Um, now, in order to understand these verses, I think we, have to, we need to know that Jesus is speaking to religious experts, religious leaders, right? Law experts, that kind of thing. And just before this, in verses 1 through 27, if you remember, he tells them the story. You can look at this in your Bible on page 692. He tells them the, 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 the parable of the landowner who moves away, but he rents his land to some farmers. When it comes time to gather the rent, he sends some representatives back, and they beat them up. <laughs> and then he sends some others back, and they kill those guys. And then he says, well, they'll respect my son. So they send it, he sends his own son, and they kill his son. Obvious a little prof- prophecy going there. And then in verse 12, of chapter 12, it, it ends by saying that they're all mad and they're trying to get him arrested because they knew that he had spoken this, pro, this parable against them, right? And so he's, what he's doing is he's pointing out Israel's sin in worship, right? Or in their lack of worship, right? Um, God had given them so much throughout their history. So often he had given them so much. And the proper response would have been a lifestyle of grateful worship or gratitude in worship for what God had supplied and given to them. But they hadn't done that, if you remember, right? So God sent prophets, right, uh, to call them back to himself, which is where the, really where they needed to be. You remember Jeremiah is one of those prophets. We just studied him for four weeks, and we know what, he, what they did to him, right? Threw him in a cistern at one point and left him for dead. But they, when, whenever God sent these prophets back, they would beat them and, you know, persecute them and, and sort of uh, sought to kill them and things like that. And then Jesus ends with that prophetic future-telling word that God will send his own son and his son would be killed, talking about himself, obviously. And then they challenged Jesus with another question designed to trap him as, as to whether or not they should pay the imperial tax. And this is a tax that is levied against non-Roman citizens. And Jesus says, take a look at the coinage, whose picture's on it. And he says, See, they all say Caesar. And he says, all right, well, you know, give Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, don't bother me with this kind of stuff. And I just love that. And, and they're all amazed and nobody tries to, you know, they, you know, they can't seem to trap him and all this kind of stuff. And so the juxtaposition of these stories, when followed by verses 28 and 34, tell me one thing is that we live live in the world, but we are not of the world. That's a pretty normal Christian thing to say. We live in the world, but we're not of the world in a sense. So as people of God, living in grateful worship as we should, if if I'm doing that all the time, there are also things that are imposed on me as a, as, as a citizen of an earthly kingdom as well, in a sort of a, you know, my, you might want to even say a godless world, you know, so there's things that I have to do to live in this life. But in this whole gamut of things that I experience, I've always, I always represent Jesus. Jesus is first and foremost the thing that I am worshiping and showing to everybody around me, even in this whole worldly mixed up thing, right? So, which brings the question, 
what really governs my life? What really governs my life? Now, this question asked here of the greatest commandment is based, as we know, on the Mosaic law. And that law was, was, it defined what is expected of a person, a person of God, a Jewish person, and especially the Jewish leadership here, what is expected of them to live a life that is worshipful before God. That's what it did. It defined that. And it's that which God gave to the Israelites through Moses, if you remember that. And if you don't know, there are three types of law in the Old Testament. And people get a little tripped up on these things. There's a civic law, there's a ceremonial law, and then there's a moral law, right? Civic, ceremonial, and moral law. The, the civic law governed when Israel was a political entity unto itself. The ceremonial law had to do with all the rituals and the sacrifices like that guy mentioned, right? And then the moral law is how people are expected to live morally, how they're expected to live, which is reflective of God's heart, right? You know, and so we know that the law in the Old Testament begins with the Ten Commandments, and it includes all the sort of different religious observances given in the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Pentateuch, as we call it, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Torah is another name for this. It's it, Basically, that word just means to show or to guide, right? So the, the law of God is something given to us to show us how to do life and to guide us through life, right? And among other things, it forbade murder and fornication, which is just an old word, mean you don't have sex outside of marriage, adultery, bearing false witness, etc., and so on and so forth. And it is really the basis of our criminal code in this country. Um, James Edwards explains, he says, the rabbinic tradition counted 613 commandments in the Torah, including 365 prohibitions and 248 positive commands. That adds up to 613. Among the commandments, rabbis differentiated between heavy and light commandments. So when Jesus was speaking of breaking one of the least of these commandments in Matthew 5.19, for example, he was observing that distinction. In other words, he was saying every, even the smallest of these things is very, very important, right? Now, the ceremonial law included things like rituals, ceremonies, sacrifices, festivals, things concerned, concerning the temple, how you acted and interacted with God in the temple, um, in, in the tabernacle, and things like that, laws of cleanliness and all that kind of stuff, all those little weedy kind of laws in the Old Testament, right? And civil laws were regulations to be enforced, you know, as I said, by the theocratic sort of national state of Israel uh, in order to maintain a civil society, right? So those, these include laws that prescribe penalties for the breaking of the moral laws, right? So like theft and murder and kidnapping and adultery and all that stuff in a society. So they ordinarily go, ordinarily they go on to include all the penalties associated with breaking a, a moral law. So do not commit Murder is a moral law of God, right? Like, I can't just go out there and just commit murder. I want to sometimes, but I don't, right? Um, but, but making it, you know, it, that has to be kind of defined in a society, right? So making premeditated, like, well thought out, I'm going to go kill you, you know, murder, uh, punishable by death, 
you know, was one thing, while making manslaughter, unintentional killing of somebody, um, punishable by confinement to a city of refuge until the great high priest passed away. So it was enough time there where that person could come back later and things had died off, you know, all the heat. And that represents civil law. Now, civil law ceases to govern when Israel's no longer a theocratic national entity, right? Whereas ceremonial law and moral law applied at all times. So here's my question. What should worship for us include, right? And if you're a thinking Christian at all, you've thought about some of these things. Does it include the civic and the ceremonial and the moral law? If the law has something to do with our worship, which we see it does, how are we to live? Which of these apply? Or do just two of them or one of them apply? Whatever. Well, firstly, we know, uh, if you've been around church long enough, you've figured it out. Christianity is not meant to be a theocracy, like an earthly governmental system over us. It's not meant to be a theocracy. Some people in the Christian world are trying to make that happen, but that's dangerous and that's wrong in my opinion. Um, It is the kingdom of God established in the hearts of people, right? You, You know, even communist China can't stamp that out of you, right? They try, but they can't. Jesus did not come to overthrow political entities like Rome, but he came to overcome humanity with the grace and the mercy and the love of God, right? Therefore, civic law is inapplicable to us. It's not, that's not even in the discussion, really. We are citizens of heaven, but we are subject, as I said earlier, to, to, to earthly kingdoms, but our ultimate loyalty is to Christ and our ultimate authority is Christ. So when the government asks me to overstep my bounds of God's moral law, I say, nope, can't do that. Sorry, I'll go to jail for it. But that's where I stand, right? So these are good questions, right? Why doesn't our worship still include the ceremonial law? Right? With all the festivals and all the rituals and sacrifices and prescriptions of cleanliness and all that kind of garbage. You know, not garbage, but you know what I mean. Uh, Figure of speech. Um, Anyway, but, um, <laughs> but why, why doesn't it, some people get tied up on those things. They're like, oh, I got to do this and I got to do that, you know. And those are good questions. And if you've walked with Jesus long enough, you've asked these things of yourself, right? And the answer is that Jesus accomplished two things while he walked this earth and, and through his death as well. First of all, he fulfilled the moral law in life before he went to the cross. And second of all, he fulfilled the ceremonial law in death. And it's really cool to think this through. You know, Scripture teaches that Jesus was the only person who ever lived perfectly according to the moral law of God. Now, that's a very important point in Christianity. You cannot have Christianity without that point, by the way. But a lot of people right now that are deconstructing their faith are saying that they're not sure if Jesus ever sinned or not, right? It just doesn't work. There's no, like it all falls apart if Jesus sinned. And he didn't. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He came 
not to destroy the old religious system like some of us think, as if it were imperfect and bad and all that stuff, but he came to fulfill it and to build upon it, right? To finish off the old covenant and to usher in the new covenant. And now in reference to the requirements of the ceremonial law, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have, uh, been stopped, have, not have stopped being offered, right? So let me just say that worship is our central purpose in life. Now, I'm not saying that just for Christians. I'm saying that for humanity. All of humanity worships something. Just a question of what. And worship is the central purpose and and desire even of, 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 of people. So God's mission to the nations, like I've been railing on for the past few years, right? As important as that is right now, missions will cease. Right At some point when the, the, the kingdom of God is fully established, but worship will continue on forever. And by, by the way, that's not going to be boring. Right? It's not going to be boring. It's not like you're not going to sit on a cloud with a little bling, 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 bling. You know, you're, it's not, that's not the way it looks, right? But it, we were created for worship, right? And participating in God's mission now, at this point in history, is partly how we worship, right? So you should come to the virtual missions trip. You'll enjoy it. But what does this tell us, these verses tell us? First of all, I want to say that sin impedes worship. Sin impedes worship, right? I'll say that as a smile. Sin impedes worship. But it does. And so if you, if you find your worship is not happening in, in your life, or you're just getting testy and upset all the time, uh, in church, you know, when you listen to that guy up here singing, whatever his name was, Jason. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you know, and, and something's bugging you. Sin impedes worship. Maybe there's something that you need to confess and get rid of in your life, and that's good for you, by the way, right? So sin impedes worship, and it must be dealt with since God is holy, and holiness and sinfulness cannot mix. They're like oil and water. But the good news is, right? that in Christ our sins have been paid for totally, past, present, and future. Now you remember that in the temple, if, if you've ever studied it, uh, when the high priest gave sacrifice for the sins of Israel, he, he went into the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant was there with the mercy seat on top and then these two uh, angelic beings overlooking that, overshadowing the mercy seat. And he would go in there and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on that mercy seat to pay for the sins of Israel. Now, I want you to, to remind you that when we see Jesus risen from the grave and they go and they look in, they peek in, what do they see? They see the big slab that he was laid on and he bled on. And then they see what? Oh, it kills me. The two angels sitting at either end. It's a beautiful image that God gives us. God doesn't just speak through these words on a page. He speaks through all this imagery, right? And that is a mirror of the mercy seat of the temple of God saying that he was, Jesus was the final sacrifice 
for all of us. So what the result of that is that when God looks down on you, he doesn't see what you think he sees. He sees the perfect record of his son. It's covered you. It's been imputed to you. Christ's righteousness. We have been made righteous in Christ. That's a wonderful truth of the gospel. Galatians chapter 3 says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Faith in Christ, right? Verse 24, So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, right? So here we see this, this word guardian. It's like, almost like caring for you, like holding you back, so to speak. The law acted, another word for for this was a teacher or a pedagogue, somebody that watched over a child and taught them and raised them up. And and that pedagogue or that teacher led us by their hand, leading us to understand our need for salvation or understand our need for Jesus. So the law convicts our hearts, and that's a good thing, Right? And it shows us our need for Jesus. And without the conviction of the law, we would not be able to perceive our need for Christ, and there would be no need for salvation in us. But this is the way the world was created, and I do believe it was created by God. And I don't believe that's anti science either, by the way. A little snarky mark, remark there, sorry. But, um, but it, must be, it must be this way given that God is real and that God's promises and plans for the world are all going to be fulfilled. You remember we talked last week or the week before about the backstage of life, the more real stage that is going on behind the scenes. We see all our news and all our politics and all the garbage going on around us, but there's really something behind the scenes that God is working on and doing. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about, right? His promises and his plans will be fulfilled. I believe that wholeheartedly. You can at least stand and point to this guy and say, that guy believes this stuff, right? But who else believed it? Remember uh, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, (laughs) right? In sharing the gospel before they stoned him to death, uh, he goes all the way back to the very beginning almost of Scripture to their father of faith, to Abraham, and then he shares all the history from that point up till his point, right? which got him in a little bit of trouble. And, uh, and what he is saying is the biblical account is real. So God is moving. God's doing something here, right? And the gospel is revealed over and over and over again through the Old Testament, through the, all these ceremonies, through all this stuff, through the temple and all that stuff, and it points to the coming of Christ. If God's real and if God created all things for his pleasure and we truly and absolutely believe that, then he dictates how life is to be lived because it's the best way for humanity and us, right? What, which is exactly what Stephen did, right, uh, in revealing how they had not worshipped God in a holistic lifestyle of gratitude throughout history. He was saying, like, you killed all those prophets, you know, <laughs> and then you killed Jesus, right? And instead, it's, you know, at the end of it, they, you know, oh, they beat all those prophets. They sought to kill them. Everyone who had come over history to remind them of these things, and again, including Jesus, right? They, so, so, in, so they stoned him for that. They're at least consistent, <laughs> right? They're at least consistent. Now, in Mark chapter 12, these 
law experts were hung up on the details of the law as seen through all their questions. They weren't seeing a few things. They weren't seeing that the law pointed to their need for Christ. They weren't recognizing that. they, They weren't seeing that the law was never meant to save. Galatians 2, 16, it says, Know that a person is not justified, which is legal language, right? When you're justified by a judge, you're free to go. Everything's paid. You're done, right? You walk out the door free. But a person is not justified by the works of the law, by doing all these little things, being morally perfect and doing all the rituals and all that kind of stuff, uh, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified, right? Now, in reference to the temple, which also pointed to Jesus, it says in Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. So, you know, we think these buildings are, this is the reality. But what, what, what he's saying is there's a backstage, all right? Listen, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That's just a model, right? That was only a copy of the true one, he says. He entered heaven itself. That's the real temple. Now to appear for us in God's presence. So Christ is there advocating for you. They also didn't realize that the ceremonial law had sort of an expiration date. Chapter 9, verse 10 of Hebrews says, They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order and the new order is referring to the person and work of Jesus as Messiah and then Hebrews chapter 10 it addresses all the different sacrifices and offerings of the ceremonial law first he said sacrifices and offerings burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. Now let me stop and say, that reveals to us that the law was put in place for for us, not for God. Right? It was there for us. God didn't need us to do all those things. It was there to teach us something, right? And so, uh, blah, blah, blah. Verse 9, then he said, here I am, this is the voice of Christ, here I am, I have come to do your will. And he sets aside the first to establish the second. The first covenant to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But... Verse 12, but when this priest, Jesus, because Jesus is referred to as the great high priest in Hebrews, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Remember that verse, verse 14. Then verse 18, he says, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Amen to that. You know, I, I sat in uh, Bandung, Indonesia on the great day of sacrifice in Islam and watched hundreds of cattle and goats get, oh, it's terrible. Just made you sick to your stomach. It was just so much work. <laughs> so much, it was expensive too for people. But, 
But what does that tell us? Verse 14 there says that we have been made perfect in Christ. I, I don't feel perfect. I don't know how about you. I'm pretty close, but I'm still a little bit far. No, I'm just kidding. But no, I don't feel perfect, right? But what does perfect mean? Perfect means that I've been made righteous in Christ. That I've been rightly connected or reconnected or rejoined with God once more by the work of Jesus Christ, right? But yet still I am being made holy, right? As I strive to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. In other words, we reflect lives of godly morality as we grow more and more like Jesus. Romans 12, 1 and 2 say it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, your true spiritual, what does it say? True and uh, proper worship, right? This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world. In other words, don't sit there and listen to everybody out there speaking in culture and have them define to you what is good and right and whatever. Let God do that, right? Because in in the next part of that verse, it says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, a passive voice, and you're being transformed in your thoughts, and this has very much to do with that same passage, right? Um, You know, and how has that happened? It happens through the word of Christ, the Word of God, the Scriptures, right? Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is good and pleasing and perfect will. Colossians 2 says it this way. A little out of Scripture, I'm sorry, but I, I thought it was really cool. Uh, it says, when you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of the flesh, so you're spiritually dead without Christ, God made you alive with Christ. He breathed spiritual life back into you, right? And He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There's that legal jargon, jargon again. Which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Amen? Amen for that one, right? What that tells us is that we are free from guilt in Christ. We are free from guilt. It also tells us that we are free to make our mistakes. I don't have to be act perfectly all the time. There are some times I leave an event or a conversation with somebody, I'm like, oh, you dork, why did you say that? Right? I can make my mistakes. But here's the more more important point in our current cultural moment as Christianity seems to be deconstructed and redefined by everybody out there. Freedom does not give me the license to intentionally sin against God's moral law. It does not give me that license. Since it's his moral law which reveals his character and his heart and that is what I am called to emulate in life. Right? Paul teaches in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. A little emphatic, right? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer than verse 6? It says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Amen to that. Just don't go back to Egypt, right? Don't put yourself under slavery again. Jesus himself addressed this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law 
or the prophets. Amen. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, now listen to this. Therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments or commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you will not certainly enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in a cursory reading of that passage, it may seem like Jesus is saying that we should be following all the little minute laws of the Old Testament, of the ceremonial law and all that stuff. But, like all of Scripture, we read with the totality of it in mind. We read with the end in mind. Scripture interprets Scripture, right? And what does he say here? He says, I've come, he's come to fulfill them, all of them, meaning the totality of the law, Christ has come to fulfill them. He's canceled the penalty of death, right? As he's the only person that can be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven since he did live a perfectly sinful, sinless life. And then he points to the religious leaders and the, you know, the creme de la creme of religious life and, and, and faith and all that stuff. And he says, they don't even live up to it. You've got to surpass them. And you can't do it. In other words, if you think that you can do that, you are fooling yourself because all of it points to me. Not me, me, but Jesus, me. (laughs) Right? Romans 10 points out, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Now, you skip down to verse 9 and it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So it does take a public confession. You can't keep your Christianity to yourself. If you you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you identify with him and you truly believe something amazing happened after that cross, right? And it's that simple. That's it. That's how you become a Christian, right? That's, that's the way it happens. There's no following rules and ceremonies and rituals and all that kind of garbage. I, I could never do that. So we conclude from all of this that the civic and ceremonial law no longer apply. They are fulfilled in Christ totally. Now the moral law has also been fulfilled in Christ, right? That we've seen that. We couldn't live up to it anyway, but he did in our place, and that's why his righteousness has been imputed to us. However, the moral law stands alone in reference to the other two because it's still the standard of governance because it's that which reflects God's heart and governs all bodies and relationships, and it's the best way to live. The ceremonial law just pointed to Christ who was to come, so we have this Now what we are left with is this pursuit of holiness and purity out of gratitude of what's been done in us and for us. As 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22 say, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin 
and deceit was found in his mouth. No deceit was found in his mouth. That's what it says before that verse that I quoted earlier, right? So Jesus fulfilled the moral law, yes, but we are left with his example of a life lived that is reflective of God's heart and to which we should always strive. That's why we have confession. That's why we have church discipline. Those are important things. Again, it says in Romans 12, 1, 12 uh, verse 1, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And when you offer your body as a living sacrifice, you're offering soul, mind, heart, body, everything. Right? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. So holiness is a direct reference to God's moral character. If we are to worship God, then it, be, it, it begins with understanding who He is and who we are in connection with Him, right? However, just understanding that, the magnitude of that is not enough, right? Remember, God is not against effort. He's just against earning. Dallas Willard quote, right? He's not against effort. He's against earning. I can't earn my salvation. I can't earn my place with him. But I can make effort in my worship of him and my, 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 uh, my bettering of myself in, in way, certain ways. There's a, there is a calling upward, a, a moral calling upward of gratitude in holiness and purity that require both the love of God and our response to his love, and that is true grateful worship, right? N.T. Wright explains, he says, the Jewish law begins with worship, with the love of God, because if it's true, we're made in God's image, we'll find our fullest meaning, our true selves, the more we learn to love and worship the one we're designed to reflect. No half measures, heart, soul, mind, and strength, that is, every aspect of human life is to be poured out gladly in worship of the one true God. Whatever we do, we're to do for Him. If we truly lived like that for a single day, God's kingdom would have come to earth as it is in heaven. And this is the point that Jesus seems to think that through his kingdom work, this commandment is now within our reach. When we worship, we seek to celebrate God's worth, and that can only be fully realized when our complete being is involved. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus told this expert of the law that greatest commandment involved love for God and love for others, right? If we're unwilling to examine our lives as they've been sort of lived out, then we will be unable to assess whether or not our love for God is actually real. Or just, are we just cultural Christians or are we actually living the life of faith? Since we'll only worship, right? We, we only worship something or someone that we love more than anything else. Worship in its base form is an act of attrib- attributing worth as highest priority in life. So for us to enter into worship, God must be gratefully loved more than even the love of self or even self-preservation. And worship means we learn to pray, right? Words often describe what our hearts feel. What do your prayers reveal 
about your heart, right? Are they words that are honorific of this divine human connection that you're making in conversation? Are they full of gratitude? Or are they complaining or just asking for selfish things, right? Good question. People struggle to be consistent in worship for many reasons. Um, perhaps some of the most effective ways of being worshipful, though, I think, is the practice of gratitude. Like I said, I've been trying to do that more this week. So if you struggle with consistency in worship, right, focus on gratitude and worship becomes natural. I watched this snarky video this week uh, on YouTube about you know, making fun of churches and how they worship. I'm so tired of hearing that stuff. Just everybody being critical. Like, get over it. You know what I mean? Like, let people worship how they want to worship. Big deal, right? Sorry. But let me say that again. If you struggle with consistency in worship, focus on gratitude and worship becomes natural. It really does. Begin your prayers with a lengthy, lengthy thank you. You know, a thank you for all the things that you have, a family, family members, good food, a roof over your head, your car, your spouse, a chance to study and better yourself, the bird that you saw that was really cool. You know, Kim and I always see like these little yellow birds and orange. Oh, they're just the coolest thing. And my heart just leaps for, for what God has created. You know, and, and if you do that, you'll find that gratitude leads to joy in worship. It really does. So this passage ends with Jesus telling this law expert that he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. And this comes about in a chapter that is bent on correcting false teaching and false piety and all that stuff. And Jesus commends this guy, right? One more step was needed. And that was a full and grateful submission of his life to Jesus. The great and final sacrifice for our sin and the, the culmination of all the law that this guy sought to practice. So are we grateful for who God is and who we are in Christ? I'm glad I was born in this century and not another one. It's a pretty crazy good century to live in. I hope I've given you some reason today to be grateful to the Lord for your life and for what you have. But when we worship in gratitude with our entire being, we make our, ourselves available to God's leading. And when we choose to follow after God's leading, we, we're, we're sort of more available to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's just a natural progression, which is the, that overflow of true and proper worship of God. Worship in Christ doesn't require anything of the civic law or the ceremonial law. They are absolutely filled, fulfilled in Christ. But the moral law having also been fulfilled, still remains the standard of life given that it reflects the character of God, the heart of God in His people. So we strive towards it, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude, right? In true worship, the affections of my heart incline towards Jesus. My soul finds identity in Jesus. My mind is renewed by Jesus' word, the scriptures, and my strength is exerted in offering my body as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Worshiping God means endeavoring to know Him in every, uh, and honor Him in every possible way that we have. And it requires intentionality and commitment and devotion.
So worship is all-encompassing gratitude that is shown in a life in the pursuit of holiness and purity that overflows to others. And that's a great witness. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and sorry if I preached too long today. (laughs) We pray for your heart to be revealed to us in these ways. Let everything that is of Jason fall away from those words and bring us deeply into alignment with your will and your presence and your truth over our lives. We thank you for this, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.